0: Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hello again, Salt Church, and welcome if you're tuning in with us, if you're new with us, it's great to be online with you. Welcome to Salt Church. Um, We're really looking forward to regathering physically, Uh, looks like that will be still a few weeks or maybe months off yet but as the government announces uh, what we can do with 70% vaccinated and particularly as they talk about the details of uh, what we can do when we're 80% vaccinated, um, I'll I'll speak more about how we will have that roadmap back uh, to regathering so do pray for that and we look forward to that. Well let me ask you this, Uh, who doesn't like to be liked. Uh, it's not just the currency of social media, isn't it? To be liked. Uh, it's something that's deep within us as human beings, the desire for people to like us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you go when following Jesus makes you incredibly unpopular? Uh, how do you sit with the Bible's promise that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted? Well, for most of you, uh, if you're tuning in from the Illawarra, if you're tuning in from Australia, uh, whatever you've experienced as a Christian, however unpopular you might have felt at times, uh, it's nothing compared to what's going on here in the book of Acts. Uh, It is brutal. Uh, The treatment is incredible. Uh, This is uh, the last of our talks uh, in Acts this year. We'll, We'll recommence again next year. But what have we seen each week in Acts? We've seen the gospel is unstoppable. It has an enormous, incredible, massive power and yet there are threats to the Gospel. Uh, There are people being thrown into prison, the disciples. Uh, People are being brutally put to death. We saw last week the, the death of Stephen. But you know, it's not just in Acts that these things have happened. It's actually been happening for the last 2,000 years. In fact, it's always been this way. You know, if you lived in 16th century England under Queen Mary, nicknamed Bloody Mary, that might give you a bit of a hint of how she treated Protestant Christians, uh, you might have thought that the Gospel was going to be stamped out for all time. Uh, Two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were prominent and faithful leaders who sought to spread the Gospel across England and across the world uh, for generations to come. They They were heroes and yet... In Oxford, in 1555, they were burnt at the stake for spreading the gospel. Now, even here in Australia, uh, it's, it's nowhere near that level, but it can feel like the gospel is being stopped. There are actually people now who are well-organised, well-resourced, seeking to remove the gospel from our community, remove scripture from schools, uh, stop churches from meeting in public venues and, and schools. Um, We heard uh, earlier this year there are now laws in Victoria stopping Christians from persuading someone or praying with someone to live out their sexuality in accordance with a Christian ethic. It's actually part of a bigger trend. I'd be very surprised if you haven't noticed this. Uh, It's a trend of Christianity being sidelined, of a mood amongst the social elites of our society that Christianity no longer has a future. In modern Australia. And so you start to read uh, news articles uh, where people are commenting uh, quite freely in a similar way to this. I have a look at these quotes, Christianity in Australia is on the brink of irrelevance, Christianity is mortally wounded. And when you read those things it can be pretty discouraging to think that's the way people are thinking about Jesus. And it kind of raises the question, Will the gospel be stopped in Australia? Uh, We'll come back to that question later, but I'll I'll give you a hint. I don't think you'll be surprised to hear me say that it won't be stopped. The answer is no. But I want you to see that answer is actually here in the book of Acts. Uh, What we see here in the book of Acts is that there's a power and there's a resilience to the gospel that makes it unstoppable to this day. So turn with me, Acts chapter eight. Have it open in front of you, uh, verse one. It says, "On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria." Really interesting. That it? previously it was the leaders, it was the apostles who were persecuted, who were, the, who were at the target of the opposition. Now it's the whole church. The whole church is scattered because of persecution. We're actually introduced here to the person of Saul Uh, later on in Acts. He meets the resurrected Jesus, he's completely transformed. But look here in verse 3, he begins to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he drags off both men and women and puts them in prison. But look at what's happening in verse 4. Those who've been scattered preach the word wherever they went. You see what's happening, Jesus is fulfilling his mission and it's happening through persecution. Do you remember back in chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus was very clear about that mission. He said to the 12 apostles, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well can you see, here in Acts chapter 8, that is starting to happen. And notice, it's not happening because of a neatly organised mission. It's happening because of severe persecution. Uh, have, have a look at this map. You see that it started in Jerusalem, but the Gospel now radiates out to the areas of Judea and Samaria to the north uh, as the persecution scatters believers. But you know, there's something else going on here that shows you the power of the gospel to include and unite people who would normally be enemies with one another. See up until Acts chapter 8 Christianity had been a movement that had been spreading against a minority of Jews uh, in in the region of Jerusalem but now the church is scattered beyond Jerusalem into Judea into Samaria and the focus here in chapter 8 is on Samaria And you need to understand something to understand the significance of this chapter. A bit of a background of the deep hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. See, way back in 900 BC, so 900 years before the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, were split into two. Uh, If you were with us here for the series we did on Hosea earlier this year, you'd remember this, there was a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, there's Judea to the south, there's Samaria uh, to the north and in the centuries that followed there's a whole lot of turmoil that's going on amongst the people of God and it's not just hostility towards one another but it's hostility with the nation of Assyria and the Babylonians and by the end of all of that, by the time we get to Jesus and the Apostles there is an entrenched hostility between the Jew and and the Samaritan. And what do we see here in Acts chapter 8? Samaritans and Jews are together becoming disciples uh, in the Lord Jesus. And you know, more than that, uh, not only that, in, in Samaritan, cult, Samaritan culture, what are we seeing here in Acts chapter 8? The Samaritan culture is about to have a massive transformation for the better as Samaritans become disciples of Jesus. See, Samaritan religion was deeply, a d- d- deeply corrupted form of Jewish religion. Uh, you get that sense here in Acts chapter 8. It's a society of deep superstitions, of demonic forces, of magic, of unclean spirits and ghosts, of, of confidence in evil spirits. A society that looked for guidance to someone like Simon, the sorcerer. He was the hero uh, in their generation, in their region. Now, I don't, know what, I don't know what you think of when you think of Simon the, mag- the magician here. Um, maybe you think of uh, Harry Potter. Uh, that's kind of pretty uh, common, isn't it? Uh, in our movies, in our culture, magic is portrayed, I think, pretty favourably. Uh, in Harry Potter, magic is used for good, uh, even against evil. And the other thing I think we're used to in our culture is celebrity magicians. Uh, massively popular. So David Blaine, I think, is a modern example. He's a brilliant illusionist, just a a wonderful entertainer, Um, really, really popular. But I think something else is going on here for Simon. Simon practices sorcery. And throughout history, sorcery uh, was called the dark arts, And it was called The Dark Arts because it was about a person who deliberately engages in the world of ghosts and demons, who deliberately manipulates the powers of death and evil. In fact, God warned his people in the Old Testament to have nothing to do with this kind of magic. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, here is the warning for Israel, here's the warning for us. There shall not be found among you, Among you, anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses fortune-telling, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. There's no doubt Simon did amazing things. Uh, He was incredibly popular. People were amazed at him uh, in his region, But there was a darkness and there was an evil involved in his power. I reckon it's another one of those points in the Bible where we're reminded that there's more to this world than the material, more than what you can see and what you can touch. That we live in a spiritual world and that spiritual world is real. Uh, That that spiritual world includes kingdoms and powers and rulers and demons and evil spiritual forces. God has power over them. God is sovereign over them. God has, in fact, conquered them at the cross through the work of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of them, but they are real. And into this world, into this dark world, comes Philip preaching the powerful gospel of Jesus. And what is the result? Well, I reckon there's four things that are happening here in Acts chapter 8, four results from that work of the gospel from Philip. Firstly, evil is driven out. Look at verse 7. People are released from evil spirits. Uh, Secondly, sickness is healed. Uh, We're told the paralyzed and the lame are restored. It's a a beautiful picture of the kingdom to come where there'll be perfect health restoration and fullness. Here is a small picture as people are restored to health. Thirdly... The good news of Jesus is proclaimed and believed and people become disciples of Jesus and they're baptised. Have a look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised and he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. But notice, lastly, fourthly, verse 8, there was great joy in that city. In spite of the many threats of the gospel, the gospel has extraordinary power. Do you see here, the light of the gospel shines in the darkness and the light wins. The light brings life. It's the light of the gospel that is the only hope for our dark world. I wonder whether you believe that. <clears throat> That's not something you'll read uh, in newspaper articles. That's not something you'll read online, but it's true. And I'm utterly convinced that the very best thing for our dark world, the only hope, is the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel in our dark world. And you know, you don't even have to be a Christian to realize sidelining Christianity will have negative consequences for our society. Here's some quotes. Uh, One is quite old from the 1940s, George Orwell. He says, One cannot have any worthwhile picture of the future unless one realises how much we have lost by the decay of Christianity. Well, here's a more recent one. Uh, Greg Sheridan, he's an Australian journalist. Uh, This is what he said a few years ago. The eclipse of Christianity will be like the eclipse of the sun. Darkness will result. That's a powerful thing to say, isn't it? He actually goes on to say, how long will the darkness last? Will it be a temporary darkness? We don't know. Or will it be a long night of the Western soul? He says, in abandoning God, we're about to embark on one of the most radical social experiments in Western history. It is nothing short of the reordering of human nature. Short of war, nothing is as consequential. The message of Jesus is the only hope for our dark world. Now back here in Acts chapter 8, what is happening is so radical that Peter and John are called in to investigate what's going on in Samaria. Have a look in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's a strange passage in the Bible, yeah? If you've read the New Testament, you have to stop at that point and go, what's going on here? Why is there a gap between believing in Jesus and receiving the Spirit? That seems weird. See, what happens? The Samaritans believe the message about Jesus, they're actually baptised with water, but it's only when the apostles come that they're baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now this passage has been... Used to create lots of confusion and doubt for Christians. Uh, In fact, I can remember growing up as a teenager and a a young adult uh, being confused by these things, uh, being aware of charismatic churches, even friends who attended charismatic churches, and being aware of this teaching that there were two types of Christians ordinary Christians and spirit baptised Christians. In fact, it was quite confronting when a friend told me, I don't have the Spirit. I believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, and yet he was sad for me because I was missing out. Uh, He said, I didn't have the Holy Spirit. He kept saying that being baptised in the Holy Spirit is different to becoming a Christian. Um, I really had to wrestle through these ideas. Um, Some helpful resources were a book by John Stott uh, called Baptism and Fullness, The Work of the Holy Spirit Today, uh, I'll, for those who get salt, our Salt Weekly, I'll leave the details in there. But actually what happened, I became convinced that the New Testament was saying something profoundly different. That actually becoming a Christian and being baptised in the Spirit happened at the same time. That there's actually only one type of Christian. It's the Spirit-filled, born-again believer, the disciple of Jesus. Um, Here are some significant passages to think about. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That's when it happened. That spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Or Romans chapter 8 verse 15. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. It's how you became a son. How you became part of the family. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot call God your father without the spirit. That is when you turn to Jesus, when you trust in him, when you believe in him as king and saviour you are forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. And what does that say? That, that tells us that what's going on here in Acts chapter 8 is unique. Uh, what is going on for the Samaritans? Why is there a gap for them? Why didn't they receive the Spirit as soon as they believed? Well, it's got to do with how absolutely groundbreaking it is that the Samaritans are being converted. They're becoming disciples of Jesus. It's actually the first instance of the gospel spreading beyond Jewish territory. Here are the Samaritans believing the message of Jesus and becoming part of the people of God. That is is a huge deal. That is unique. Uh, It's the same thing that's happening at the end of the chapter with the eunuch. uh, When he is converted, eunuchs were excluded from the people of God in the Old Testament. And here is the eunuch believing in Jesus, being baptised and being included. That is a big deal. Now, they're still Samaritans, they're still eunuchs, but they're part of the people of God because they've trusted in Jesus. That is a big deal. That is unique. That is new. And it's such a big deal that the question would have arisen at the time, how can Samaritans be included in the people of God? Can that really happen? They come from a superstitious background. There is so much evil in their history. What does a Samaritan need to do to become part of the people of God and be included? Do they need to become Jewish? All of these questions would have been up in the air. And who, is, who are the people authorised by Jesus to answer that question once and for all, for all history? It's the apostles of Jesus. And so notice when the apostles arrive... The answer they give isn't, well, if you want to become a Christian, you need to do X, Y, Z. They don't say that. Notice they bring confirmation. They lay hands on them as a sign of fellowship and acceptance. And then there's that very obvious moment when the Spirit of God is poured out even on the Samaritans. That, that is, the Samaritans too are included in the people of God on exactly the same basis as the Jew. That is, turning to God in repentance, believing in Jesus as King and Saviour, nothing more is required. I don't want to say that it's the same for us today. <clears throat> we're all from different backgrounds. Um, some of you grew up uh, in Christian homes. Some of you were encouraged to um, go to church. You heard the stories of Jesus growing up. What qualifies you to be part of the people of God? It's believing in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And then some of of us grew up in homes where we weren't taught the the stories of Jesus, we weren't encouraged to go to church. You might be tuning in today and have had very little to do with church, very little to do with Christianity. What qualifies you to be part of the people of God? It's believing in Jesus as Saviour and King. There is nothing more to it. And as we believe in Christ as Lord and Saviour, we are forgiven of our sins. We receive the Spirit of God. We become part of the people of God. Well, let me take the opportunity to ask you, have you had that experience? Is that you? Have you been forgiven? Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? that you might receive the Spirit of God, that God might dwell with you. Um, If we can help you with that, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, If you don't have that assurance, please do get in touch with us, connect with us. Even today, we'd love to talk to you more about that. Well, lastly, in the midst of all the joy that comes with the Samaritans embracing the Gospel, there comes corruption as well. We've seen this before uh, in Acts, here it is raising its ugly head again. And it's the temptation to exploit the gospel for money. Now, it's not surprising Simon the ex-sorcerer is at the centre of this uh, exploitation. Have a look at verse 18. See, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, "'Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit.'" So even though he started following Jesus, he still has this magical, superstitious way of relating to God, doesn't he? He has a, a, a superstitious attitude towards the power of God. And it's really hard to tell. Is, is he someone who is just a young believer starting the journey and he's got lots wrong? Or is, or is he actually not really converted at all? It's a bit hard to tell. But one thing's for sure... He knows there is real power in the gospel of Jesus. See, here is a man who spent his whole life dabbling with supernatural power, uh, manipulating the powers of the spiritual world. And when he sees Philip speak about Jesus powerfully, when he sees the miracles that Jesus is doing in, sorry, that, that Peter's doing in Jesus' name, he says, What you have is more powerful than what I have. And he goes further than that, doesn't he? I want what you have and I want to make money out of what you have. And Peter rebukes him harshly. Look at verse 20. He says to him, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now Peter's very clear, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, they are free gifts given by God. Um, they come free of charge, they're not to be bought, they're not to be exploited for money, That is a wickedness, that is an evil. You know, tragically, throughout history, people have tried to exploit the gospel, uh, exploit the gospel message in order to gain power, in order to gain prosperity. Uh, In our day, we see it very clearly uh, in the prosperity gospel, uh, that idea that if you have enough faith, uh, if you give enough money, uh, you can buy your way into more blessing, into more wealth, into more health and prosperity. Uh, It's a terrible evil. It's a distortion of the gospel. Have a listen uh, to what uh, John Stott says, a great Christian thinker. We have to have the courage to reject the health and wealth gospel. Absolutely. It is a false gospel. Or listen to John Piper He says, I tell you what I feel about it, hatred. It is not the gospel. See, God does want us to be generous. God is a generous God and he often um, abundantly blesses us. And he loves to shower blessing on his people so that we might be generous to others. But we must never get the idea that somehow we can manipulate God's blessing." God's power, or that we could earn it. All God's blessings are freely given. They're not earned, they're not bought, they're not to be exploited. Well, what have we seen today? We've seen the unstoppable gospel again, the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel. Uh, We started uh, this talk by thinking about the threat to the gospel, persecution. And what have we seen as we've seen the Uh, the the story of Acts unfold again and again, that in spite of threats, that in spite of persecution, when things look terrible, Jesus continues to grow his church surprisingly powerfully. And that pattern has continued for 2,000 years. I don't know whether you know, but when Latimer and Ridley died at the stake in the 16th century, If you were there, you would have thought, this is awful. This is terrible. This is a stamping out of the gospel. But listen to Latimer's final words. He turns to Ridley and he says, Be of good comfort, Mr Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And it was true. The light of the gospel was not put out in 16th century England, far from it. The gospel continued and does continue in England to this day and went to the ends of the earth. But there are lots of other examples. Let me give you the China Inland Mission story very quickly. Hudson Taylor, Uh, this is a hundred years ago. Hundreds of missionaries relocated to China to bring the message of Jesus to that nation. In 1949, the communist government was making life incredibly hard uh, for, for Chinese Christians. And they actually sent all 637 missionaries home. All of them were withdrawn from the country. It looked like a total, total failure. But what does it look like now, 70 years on? Christianity is the fastest growing movement in China. It's estimated that there are 105 million Christians. That's about four times the population of Australia. And it's growing. And it continues to spread. And if China uh, goes at this rate, they will have more Christians than any other nation on the planet uh, inside of, within the next 10 years. You know, it's even in our own country, which is a very small nation, a very small place in terms of what God's doing on the larger scale of the globe. Even in our own country where it feels like Christianity is in decline, Jesus continues to build his church. I don't know whether you know, but in our network of churches, just a small patch in a small country in part of God's big world, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, over the space of about four years... We're about to double the number of churches that we have across the nation in our network. Now, some of those are existing churches that have come in, but many of them are new churches, are church plants that have commenced. Jesus is the powerful King and Saviour. His gospel is the only hope for an increasingly dark world. So what do we need to do? We need to keep pressing on, keep proclaiming this gospel, keep believing this is the way God does things, as we see more disciples uh, here in the Illawarra. And let me finish with this. Rather than being afraid of opposition, could it be that opposition is the very thing that helps us grow? For what does opposition do? It actually gets you to think, doesn't it? It actually gets you to think, are you serious about following Jesus? It actually gets you to ask the question, is this gospel really worth fighting for is this gospel the only hope for a dark world is it worth protecting and proclaiming and living for is it true it says something also incredibly powerful to the outsider these people believe in this gospel in this jesus they persist they are incredibly different people even under opposition I reckon we're going to stand out as that light of the gospel even more as our as our community becomes darker. That's how God's always done things, and that's how we'll continue to do things. Let me leave you with the words of Jesus. Jesus said, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it." Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you for the journey we've had through the book of Acts this year. Uh, Father, thank you for your powerful gospel, uh, your great desire to gather people around the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for this light in a dark world. uh, Your ability to um, make evil be um, cast out, to bring light and life and hope to a dark world. Uh, Father, thank you that we're part of this journey as your gospel goes from, from Judea, Samaria, but also to the ends of the earth. Father, please help us uh, to take up faith in Jesus, to receive forgiveness of sins in the spirit, your spirit. Help us to proclaim this wonderful message of hope and light uh, to the people of the Illawarra. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.